Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you are blessed by today's sermon. Uh, if you were to sum up the goal of the Lenten season, it is this, changed lives. Okay? There's an old saying, God will accept you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. There are two elements of our walk with Christ, salvation and sanctification. Salvation requires we repent and believe in Jesus and the good news of his kingdom. The second, sanctification, requires we follow Jesus the rest of our lives, allowing him more and more to take control of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Salvation requires we receive what Christ has already done for us. Sanctification sanctification requires we surrender to what God wants to do in us. Remember last week, we talked about this, Jerry did, that the, the gospel message is the kingdom is near, repent and believe, and then follow. What we're talking about today is the follow, because if you're a believer, you've already done the repent and believe, now we follow. I remember reading a book by J.D. Greer entitled, Stop Asking Jesus to Come Into Your Life. It's like, when you've been a Christian for 40 years, Jesus is in your life, okay? The thing is, follow him, okay? That was his point. And so, that's what we're talking about today, and that's how we're changed and transformed. And we're going to look at the Old Testament lesson today to uh, learn more about that, because uh, Jacob... He is such a scallywag, but he's also a patriarch. And his story today tells us an awful lot about the process of change that God uses. And it's a good thing to know because uh, Colleen and I joke about this halfway, and halfway it's serious that, boy, when Lent comes, things go crazy. And uh, uh, we we notice that in our own home and, and just in the world in general, that Lent is a time when God seems to do a, a shifting and a sifting. And uh, it's a time when God is calling all of us for transformation and change. So if we understand that, it makes it a lot easier to go through it. So the first thing we experience when God wants to change something in us is a crisis over who is in control of our lives. Have you noticed that for even faithful Christians, our biggest struggle in life is with God? As a matter of fact, I would say the longer we are Christians, the more our biggest struggle in life was with God. Who's in charge? See, the the more I'm transformed, the more I think, well, I'm in pretty good shape. And what God is saying is, no, there's more. Let's keep at it. And so the more we can surrender ourselves to God, the more he can work in us. Who's going to be in control? I need God's help, but I don't want to let go. And God is telling me, if I don't let go, then he can't help me. Think of the story about the man who falls off the cliff, grabs hold of a limb, is hanging in midair. He doesn't realize there is a ledge two feet below him. And he's praying in in the fog, saying, Lord, please help me, please help me. And God is saying, let go of the limb. And he goes, who else is up there? (laughs) He doesn't want to let go. 
In Genesis 32, we have the story of Jacob's unusual wrestling match with God. Then Jacob was left all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until dawn. When the man saw that he couldn't win the match, he struck Jacob's hip and knocked it out of joint at the socket. Now, some biblical scholars want to debate who is wrestling with Jacob. But the prophet Hosea says, before Jacob was born, he struggled with his brother. And when he became a man, he even fought with God. This guy fought all his life. But his biggest battle was with God. You know, every time I have a major problem in my life, it boils down to two issues. Will I obey God in this situation? And will I trust God in this situation? I was telling the first service that when I was uh, teaching uh, at the Green Hill School, our headmistress just got it in her head that the, the whole third grade team had did something crazy. And uh, that she called us all in and she was just chewing us out. And finally I had enough of it. And I, in an ungracious way, it explained to her that she was wrong. And, uh, and then she told us all to leave the office. And I'm about halfway back to my uh, classroom when I hear God clearly say, go apologize. It's like, why should I apologize? She's wrong, not me, you know. And he said, no, you go apologize. You're the Christian. You go apologize. And uh, it's, uh, it doesn't matter if she's wrong. You didn't behave in a Christ-like fashion. And so I was like, okay. And so like a kid with his thumb in his mouth, <laughs> I go back down to the office and I knock on her door and I go in and I apologize. And uh, I had to trust God that this was the right thing to do because I guess it could have been. It, I put myself in a very vulnerable situation, which no one really wants to do. But you know what? My apology led to us having the strongest relationship that we could have had over the next several years before I went to seminary. So it was a real blessing to obey God when I knew God was wrong. <laughs> he proved himself to be right, you know. Uh, so it really does boil down to will I obey God and will I trust him? And no matter what your problem is, financial, physical, relational, social, career, no matter what it is, it really comes down to these two things. Am I going to do the right thing? And am I going to trust God to handle it for me? For, you know, there's an old saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, do your best and leave the results to God. And I used to not understand that. And I asked my barber who was an AA one time, and she said, well, you do the best you can. You, you do the work. You fill out the forms. You, you know, do the interview uh, well, but the, you don't try to control reality. You leave the results to God. And uh, I think that's one thing that we Christians have to learn, is that uh, we do our best, but then we trust God for the results. But I do know that every time I say no to God, it normally leads to a personal crisis. And God often allows a crisis in our lives to get our attention. All of a sudden... You're laid flat on your back, and you're forced to look up. And God wants to help you grow to be better, to be different, to be all that you were meant to be, all that he created you to be. And so he allows a crisis. 
Why? Well, because we rarely change until the pain we feel exceeds our fear of change. Or let me put it another way. We don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. Some of you are in phase one right now with different things. You're struggling with God. And, and once you get to the point where the pain is greater than your fear of change, then you move to phase two. And that is a commitment to stick with it until you get a result. Okay? In the commitment phase, we say, I'm sticking with this until I get something out of it. And if we give up, we miss the blessing. This is so important in marriage. Now, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about a spouse partner who doesn't want to have a Christian marriage. But I'm talking about two Christians who are married and just, you know, anybody who's been married a week knows that you've got to put a little effort into it, you know. And uh, the uh, world says, well, if, if it's too much trouble, then just leave and get a divorce. The church says, if you'll hang in there on Good Friday, you'll get a resurrection. And I was thinking about that with my own parents. They, lived, they were married like 64 years. And uh, you know, I asked mom one day how, how they got so far. And she said, well, we uh, ruled out homicide. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I noticed that when they would hang in there on Good Friday their marriage would be resurrected stronger and better every time. And anybody who's been married a while knows that. So we have a commitment to stick with it. And this is what Genesis 32, 26 says, Then the man said, Let me go, for it is dawn. But Jacob panted, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Many times people miss God's best in life because they give up too soon. Sometimes it is being persistent in prayer that prepares us to receive God's blessing. It's almost as though if I'm too glib about my prayers and God gives me something that I really didn't invest my heart in, then I'm going to take it for granted and not use the gift he's given me. So sometimes the extent I pray for something is for God to shape me to prepare me to use well the gift that he is giving me. So be persistent. Hang in there. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up on Good Friday so you can see an Easter. The third phase in how God changes us is the most difficult one of all, and that's confession. It's first we have the crisis, we struggle with God, then there's the commitment to stick with it until we receive a blessing, and then there's a confession. And in this phase, we admit we may be part of the problem. Genesis 32, 27 says, The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Well, names in the... Biblical Middle East in that time meant something. It described your character. We kind of did that with Abby and Annie as best we could. Uh, Abigail Grace is uh, fathers are a parent's delight. And uh, Grace is unmerited gift from God. 
and she really is a delight and an unmerited gift from God. We named Annie after uh, Mary's cousin and her grandmother, Jesus' grandmother, and uh, we figured they would be good influences as well. <laughs> but names mean something. They say who you are in the Middle East at that time. And uh, Jacob's name uh, was a way of him owning up to who he was. When he said, I am Jacob, he is saying, I'm a deceiver, a manipulator, a liar. I would cheat you out of your last dollar. He did all those things. And that's, he lived up to his name in that way. And when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, he's confessing, owning who he really is. So what does that mean for us? Well, you or I are never going to be able to change until we openly and honestly admit our sins, our weaknesses, our faults to ourselves, to God, and to other people. Because the Bible says God opposes the proud. If you're prideful, God is opposing you right now. But he gives grace to the humble. Pride is a wall that we build up between God and others and ourselves. Humility tears the wall down. So we're able to receive God's grace through God and through others. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the power to change. And when you come to God and say, God, I want to own up to the weakness, the dishonesty, the wrong I've done in my life, God is not going to be surprised. Okay? He's not going to say, wow, how did I miss that? He already knows. But you need to own up to yourself, to God and to others in order to tear down the wall. Take power away from that wall. Tear it down. That's preventing you from receiving God's grace. And then we come to the good part. That's the fourth stage in God's process of change. And that's conversion. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about your initial conversion to salvation. Here I'm talking about a new identity. Okay? They look at God's loving and gracious response to Jacob's confession. This is in Genesis 32, 28 and 30. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face. Notice three things happen. Jacob gets a brand new identity. God says, your name has been Jacob, the manipulator. That's the old you. We're not going to call you that anymore. We're going to change your name. We're going to call you Israel, which means, among many things, uh, struggles. he who struggles with God and prince with God. God is saying, I know you've blown it. I know you're conniving. I know you're a jerk. But I see in you a prince. I created a prince when I made you. Beneath all your emotional hang-ups and all your insecurities and all the stuff you don't want anybody else to know, I see a prince. How many of you taught school ever? Okay. How many of you saw a child, something in a child who was a terror, but you saw in that child something wonderful? And you were able through the way you ministered to that child to begin to bring that out of that child. That's what God's doing with us. He's transforming us, changing us. 
Because he sees what he created us to be, regardless of what we are. God sees what he created us to be. His intention is what matters here, not my mistakes. Okay? God wants to say today to you, beneath all the sins, all the things you've done wrong in life, I see the potential in you. You can be something great. I can help you become what I made you to be if you just be honest about who you are now. Jacob gets a new identity, and he receives a blessing. And then he is given a reminder of his experience so he'll never forget what happened to him for the rest of his life. God gave him a limp. The sun rose as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Now, in the struggle, God dislocated Jacob's hip. And he left a weakness there. And for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. Now, what's the significance of the limp? Well, it's twofold. First of all, Jacob could no longer run away from his problems. Okay? He had to stand and face them. And secondly, the limp became a daily reminder to depend on God. Your thigh muscle is the largest and strongest muscle in your body. And God touched Jacob at this greatest point of strength. And from that point on, Jacob was going to have to stand in God's power, not his own. We have to remember to depend on God, to depend on his strength, not our own. Otherwise, we throw ourselves back into the struggle over control that occurs in phase one. You know, I don't like having cancer, and I do not like having all the... Uh, back problems I have but every day I'm reminded I have to rely on God's strength and that's a blessing and even if I do finally get healed in this life I don't want to ever forget the blessing that comes from relying on God so I'm grateful for it uh, if you have a spiritual limp, rather than slowing you down, it can actually help you move forward and keep you growing. Uh, I saw that so many times with friends of mine who went into AA. Uh, they had a spiritual limp of alcoholism. But rather than slowing them down, once they got into AA and began working the 12 steps, I was jealous of them. They were moving ahead. I mean, they were like tearing through spiritual growth because they were relying on God in a way that they hadn't before and I hadn't learned how to yet. So it can sometimes be the limp that keeps us growing. But let me close by saying this. God does his deepest work in you when he deals with your identity. We always tend to act according to our self-image. So God does his deepest changes in your life by changing the way you see yourself. You're not a thief, you're a prince, he says to Jacob. He says, let me show you how I see you. And through eyes of love, unconditional love, when you see yourself the way God sees you, it's going to change your life. And it's going to change how you look at other people. All of a sudden, people who are irritating, you're like, yeah, but God loves you, so there's a reason. And uh, it may take me a while to find it, but I'm going to find it. Because... I'm not going to deny God uh, that God did a good thing when he created you.
When you see yourself the way God sees you, when you help other people see themselves the way God sees them, it can change lives. And you can start living in a whole new way. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. May every one of us live that new life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.